0: The depth of God's love. The depth of God's love. Last week, if you remember, we looked in depth into the conversation that began with Nicodemus. Remember, Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is is a man who is a, a cautious observer at best of Jesus. And you remember, he approached Jesus at night with the hopes of getting not only perhaps a glimpse, but quite possibly some insight into who Jesus was exactly. Nicodemus was a high-ranking Pharisee. That means he was one of the higher-ranking Jews who had at least either witnessed or had heard of the miracle that Jesus had performed at the wedding at Canaan when he had turned the water into wine. And When he hears of this or even sees it, it, he is immediately inquisitive into who Jesus is and how he was able to do what he was able to do. If you remember, we discussed that Nicodemus was able to identify that Jesus was, in fact, a teacher sent from God. But what we also saw is that Jesus challenged his entire life by telling him that, unless he came to be born again that his self-centered righteousness meant nothing without the righteousness of Christ. Last week we encountered verses 1 through 15 and today we want to get to what may be arguably but probably it is the most famous verse in all of biblical history and that is John 3:16. That is John 3.16. I mentioned it last week. It's one of those verses. I don't remember learning it. I don't remember being taught it. I just know it. I just knew it as a child. It is probably the most ubiquitous verse that we come across because more and more people know this verse, whether they're a believer or not. They have a familiarity with John 3.16. Now, listen, before we begin, I know that you already probably think that you have this sermon down pat. I know, John 3, 16, I know exactly where you're going. Perhaps you do. But none of us in this room are too seasoned, too old, or too mature to be reminded of the depths of God's love. In fact, we must constantly remind ourselves that it reaches so much further beyond our sins and it is sufficient for us. And that we need nothing more than the love that God has provided for us through Christ. Amen? Amen. There was this young man who was always with his dad. And whenever he was with his dad, his dad would always take him different places. And when he would go with him, he would always see something small and everything huge that he wanted. And every time he saw something that he wanted, he would ask his dad, Dad, can, can I have that? And... More often than not, because his dad says, you know, you're a generally good kid. You don't give me too much trouble. In fact, you're pretty much always on my good side. So he would always get him what he asked for. And whatever he did, he would always say something like, now, son, I'm only getting this for you because I love you. Only because I love you. And so this was pretty routine for them. The son never asked me anything too large. He always asked for something reasonable. And his dad was usually um, perfectly fine with with, with providing that for his son. Now a few years pass and the son gets older and at this point he's about 16 years old and his dad wants now to get him a car. And now he wants to provide with him a car. So they're at the dealership and as they're at the car dealership, they're looking through different cars and the son of course is bright eyed and bushy tailed and looking through different cars until finally his eyes set on the perfect car. And he says, "Dad." This is the one. This is the car. I can see myself in this car. And his dad looks at the car, and it is a brand-new, souped-up, candy-red Corvette. And he's looking at it. And then again, he glances at his son. He glances back at that car, and he immediately starts to visualize his son Flying down the highway in that car and he thinks about the danger that his son would probably be in if he gets that car for him and he thinks about it and he says, son, you know what? I love you, but I love you too much to risk your life. See, what he was unwilling to do is what many of us are unwilling to do with our own children is, is we are unwilling to put our children in compromising positions. We're not willing to risk their lives, not because we don't love them, but because of the love that we have for them. We are not willing to put their lives in any danger. Now, when we look at the depth of God's love, what we will define as love looks very different because with God, he spared no expense as far as providing for us his son. In fact, God offered his son up as a sacrifice. We can argue that God went with his child where many of us will not go. And what we see today is that the depth of God's love runs so much deeper than we could ever imagine it to run. What is amazing about God is that he spared not his own son and through his love, and though his love ran deep, it is that love that drove God to sacrifice his only son. And that's what we're talking about today. The depth of God's love. Join with me, if you will, to John Comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's thank God for the reading of the word. What an amazing passage! What a glorious passage! It encompasses the gospel in a few scriptures and if you remember, as we discussed last week, Jesus is still in the middle of this dialogue that he was having with Nicodemus. But I think at this point, Nicodemus doesn't utter another word. In fact, from this point, Jesus just goes on and on and on. And, and I can only imagine that. Nicodemus felt the absolute breath of these words I mean how could he utter another word we we are transformed just by seeing and reading these words but can you imagine standing there and having received the amazing gospel that has just been presented to him by Jesus himself listen let's let's break this passage down more completely And so the first point of the day is just a reiteration of the title for today, which is the depth of God's love. That's the first point, the depth of God's love. Jesus, in this passage, immediately qualifies the love of God. In fact, I like the way that the CSB translates it. It says, God loved the world in this way. This is how, this is the effectiveness, this is the way that God loved the world. Clearly from this text, we see that God loves all of his creation. And so when it says here that he loved the world, this is not the same term of when we hear the world and it's talking about the realm of Satan that's in opposition to God. But this is all of mankind that has been created in the image of God. He loves all of us, all of his humanity. God loves his creation. See, many of us believe that we truly understand what love is, but... Any measure of love that does not, in fact, begin with God is merely a broken and shadowy reflection of his true love. Listen, most of us in terms of love, when we want to measure how effectively we are loving those around us, we don't tend to look at the measurement of God's love. What we tend to do is we look around at the other people around us. We see how they love other people, and that's how we then measure our lives up. And, you know, the husband next door, is, he's pretty bad. He's not really a great husband. So as long as I measure my life up against what he's doing, I'm doing great. Or, or the, the man down the street doesn't really take care of his kids. And so, if, you know, if that's the standard, then my love for my kids is wonderful. But that's not how we measure love because that's not the definition of love. The Bible tells us emphatically that God is love. And so any measurement that we use to understand love, unless it is God, it will always come up short. Because we cannot fully comprehend God's love. Listen, not get it. Y'all know me. Nobody wants you to know more about the wrath of God than me. Nobody wants to qualify what God's wrath looks like for those who who do not believe more than I do. But the fact of the matter is, is, it's not until we know how deep his love goes that we can fully understand why his wrath must go as far as it goes. Listen. It always angers me. It frustrates me. In fact, Aaron Rodgers just said this recently. It was quoted. I don't understand how a God who claims to be loving will condemn people to hell for all of eternity. Now, you know why people cannot understand that? Because until you understand how deeply the roots of God's love goes, you will not understand how deep his wrath must go as well. See, the depth of God's love goes where man cannot go. It reaches where man cannot reach and it does what man cannot do for himself and that is save himself. That is what the love of God does. God loved the world this way that he gave up his son and he poured out his wrath on his son. That is what the love of God did. And let me tell you people, despite what the song may say, there is nothing reckless about his love. It is measured. It is reasonable. It is centered. It is rational. It is just. That is the love of God, and it ain't reckless at all. In fact, Andre Crouch wrote a song several years ago. He was talking about the blood of Jesus. He said, it reaches to the highest mountain, and it flows to the lowest valley. But I came to tell you here today that unless that blood is precipitated by the love of God, it is ineffective to do anything unless God's love reached that high and went that low. The blood of Jesus could do nothing. It was the love of God that poured out the blood of his son. And the love of God allowed that blood to run wherever the course of life has taken us and it is effective to save whomever needs to be saved. He poured out our wrath. Let me make it clear to you. Let me make it personal for you. The wrath that he poured out on his son, it belonged to us. Let me make it real personal. It belonged to me. He poured out Brandon's wrath for Brandon's sin on his son. He gave up his son. How much did he love all of creation? He poured out our wrath on his son so that he would not have to pour it out on us. That's how much he loved us. So for the people who say, I don't understand how God, who claims to be loving, could send us to hell for all eternity, then you cannot possibly understand the gospel. Because if you do understand the gospel, let me tell you what I can't understand. How if you understand the gospel knowing how deep the love of God runs, why anybody would reject what he has done for us. So we see, God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son. He gave him so that he could lay on his back the sins of us all. God gave us his son so that he could give us his righteousness while giving him our sin. In other words, God looks up on the cross where Jesus is and and he sees us and then he looks at us and he sees Jesus. (laughs) That is the gospel. If we are Christians, we must not only grip the gospel, but we must be gripped by it as well. We must let it be our conviction and we must be willing, listen to this, we must be willing to... Climb out of our little puddles of sin and be overtaken by his sea of love. We must believe that it is sufficient to melt away any barrier of sin in anyone's life so that they can clearly see the truth. How deep does his love go? That is the depth of God's love. Point number two the effectiveness. The effectiveness of God's love. Now, this is such an essential component to the gospel and to our faith. Now, I always talk about how there is nothing that we can do in order to gain our salvation. There is nothing we contribute to our salvation. But this is why. Because nothing we can do is a fraction of the effort compared to what Jesus has already done. In fact, just yesterday, just last night, I saw a post by this lady who said, this is how you become a Christian. She said, you repent, and you get baptized, you fill the Holy Spirit, and you speak in tongues, and that's how you become a Christian. And I thought to myself, well, I hope I make it to all three steps, because just in case I skip one of the steps, then I guess, I guess I'm not really a Christian, Listen, anything that we contribute to our salvation is faulty and of no worth because the work was complete when Jesus Christ died on the cross. There is nothing that we can add to be more saved. He did the final work on the cross. All we do is repent and believe. There is nothing I can add to it. And so it is such an insult to God when we think there's anything else that we can do that can supplant what he has already done. There is nothing else that we can do to accept, to earn his acceptance. He did everything to make acceptance in him possible, and he did it through Jesus Christ. In fact, the very notion that there is anything that we must add says that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is not sufficient. It is not transcendent. And most importantly, it is ineffective. See, this is why Nicodemus is having such a hard time because he feels like he absolutely should be able to add something. It, no, 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 no. There must be something that I can do. And Jesus tells him, there is Nothing. There is nothing that you can do. In fact, I've said it before, but let me say it again. The only thing that is required to you for you to bring to Jesus is the sin that you need saving from in the first place. There is nothing else that we need to bring. I do want you to see this, though. We must qualify. What it means to believe. I think that's one of the big mistakes in church today is that we are not qualifying what it means to believe. See, the scripture says here, whoever. That is what the text says, whoever, and that is true. And when we, at first glance, that is incredibly inclusive. And you've heard me talk about it. I say the gospel is not inclusive, it is exclusive. And so when we first look at it, it seems incredibly inclusive. Whoever, whoever wants to come, let them come. From this text, it means that whoever comes will be accepted. And that is, that is the beautiful aspect of the gospel. There is no one who has ever come to Christ and been rejected. Nobody has ever laid their life down before the altar of Christ and he has ever said no. Anybody who has ever come to him and sincerely come to him has been presented and has been accepted. And the gospel has transformed their lives. Not one will be forsaken that comes to Christ. So what is belief? We see that God's love is effective to save whomever believes, but we must figure out what belief is. Now, when you ask most people, do you believe in God? Most of their responses are yes, or I love the Lord. I love God. That's what they all say. But that isn't how Jesus defines belief. So what is belief? First of all, it is more than just believing that Jesus existed. It is more than just believing that God exists. In fact, the Bible tells us, you want to know who the fool is? The fool is the person who has said in their heart there is no God. Remember, God has made his existence clearly perceived to all of us through our natural reality. So merely intellectually accepting that God is real isn't true belief. In fact, Jesus says, you believe that God is one, congratulations, you do a good job. But even the the demons believe and they, they shudder. So we must qualify what belief is. If believing he exists isn't true belief, what is? In Mark... 15, we get a little insight to what belief truly is. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, when we truly come into saving faith, it isn't our heads that turn, but it is our hearts that turn. The mark of true belief is faithfully and gracefully turning away from our sins. That is what it means by whoever believes. Whoever comes to Christ and repents can only do so because Christ has drawn them to himself. The only way we are able to repent at all is that he has made it possible for us to repent and believe. In fact... True repentance is impossible at all unless true belief is there and the corollary is true. True belief is impossible if true repentance isn't there. The two are mutually exclusive and we cannot divorce them from one another. God's love is so effective that when we come to him, only he is powerful enough to change the direction of our lives. If you have been saturated in that love, then the evidence of that belief is present in our lives. It is present everywhere in our lives. Let's walk through this. Repentance, which means turning away from our sins, it is a response to God's love. The only way we can effectively repent and turn Is that it is love itself that motivates us to do it? We are commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then scripture says, But if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So let's explain. When we see the incomprehensible love of God, it moves our hearts to repent and believe the truth. Now, the evidence of that repentance is unwavering love and devotion to God and his law. And his law forces us to love all of those who are around us by continuously giving them the gospel, which, according to Paul in Romans 12, is our reasonable service. He says for you to give up your whole body as a living sacrifice for the faith is your rational response to the gospel. And it doesn't mean that that's the least that you can do. That's the most that we can do is give ourselves back to him. Nothing else will move us like the love of God and nothing else can save us but the love of God. Look at the beauty here. Jesus says that he was not sent into the world to condemn the world, but that through him, through him, the world might be saved. So if we wholly believe and trust fully in Christ, we are free from condemnation. We are free from the penalty of our sins. We are free in him. So when we say the gospel is good news, this is what we mean. There was an eternal debt that I had to pay that I could not afford to pay that my life would have been the sacrifice for if he had not changed me and saved me. That is the good news that all of us who believe have been snatched out of the grips of hell and flung into eternal bliss with God and his angels and we have been saved but not only have we been saved he is preserving us until the day of Jesus Christ and that means there is no kind of hell that we go through down here that will compare to the heaven we'll have up there that is how deep the love of God goes that's the best news we can ever have as a Christian You mean to tell me that because of what somebody else did, I'm saved from eternal damnation and wrath? Yes, that's what I mean. That is the gospel. But that does bring us to our third and final point of the day. And that is the rejection of God's love. The rejection of God's love. Listen, while the gospel is absolutely good news to those of us who believe, the reality is that it is terrible news to those who reject it. It is horrible news to those who do not believe. We who believe are free from the condemnation of our sins, but those who callously reject the gospel, they are not going to be condemned. Jesus said, they are condemned already. Why are they condemned? Because they have rejected the love of God and the sacrifice of His only Son. Let's revisit a scripture I mentioned earlier. Earlier, I said the Bible says the fool has said in his heart, There is no God. And that's true. But listen to what it's saying. It didn't say that the fool said in his head, There was no God. He said, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. That is much more than rationalizing that the evidence for God isn't there. That is knowing that the evidence for God is there, yet choosing to live in a way as if he isn't there. That's what it means when we reject him. We don't just make a decision in our heads that God doesn't exist. We live as if he doesn't exist. We live as if there is not an eternal punishment that is waiting on us. There is a denial of God, not in the head, but it's in our hearts. Many people who deny God in their hearts do so because they don't like the idea of the true God. Can you have a belief about God in your head that is detached from your heart? You better believe it. You can absolutely have a belief about God in your head that is detached from your heart. And so you create the God that you prefer, you prefer to exist, not the God that does exist. And just so you know it, that is everyone who rejects God, who says they believe in God. They have denied him in their hearts. And in their heads they have created the God that they think should exist. That's everybody who who rejects him. Right now, the Pope proclaims to be the holiest man alive. He proclaims to have ascended to a level of righteousness because of his righteous acts and his deeds and his sacrifices, his life of celibacy. He has proclaimed to be the holiest man on earth, so holy that he alone has become the mediator between man and God because he believes he has ascended to a level of righteousness that nobody else can ascend to. That is what they claim. They think that it is their righteousness that brings them righteousness. That denies the gospel. In fact, I know this so well. I was at a funeral mass one time for my aunt. And at that funeral mass, the priest, as he was closing, says, Now Bernice, she was no saint, but she was a really good person. No, no, it doesn't work that way. You cannot be a good person apart from the saving grace of God. You know why? Because good people don't need their sins paid for. Good people don't need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Good people don't need a savior. We are terrible people who only have one opportunity to be saved from the wrath of God. And that is Jesus Christ. We are not good people. The Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked. And it is only Jesus and Jesus alone who can transform our hearts. But look at what Jesus said here. Jesus is the light that has come into the world. In a world of sin and in a world of darkness, he has brought to us the radiance of the glory of God. But what does Jesus say? He says, but people loved darkness rather than light. This is what it means to reject Jesus. Think about Judas. Think about Judas. Did he have saving faith? He couldn't have. Here you have a man who walked with Jesus, who saw him do all of his signs, who heard him teaching. Here you have a man who strove with Jesus, but in his heart, Jesus was worth nothing more than 30 pieces of silver. That's why I tell people who, who say, well, if I could just see him, then I would believe. Baby, it's not until you believe that you truly see him. You are lying if you think that you can look at him and then think that that will transform your heart. It is when we look at the word of God that it must transform our hearts. And then we finally see a bleeding Savior on a cross who paid for the sins of us all. Now, I like what Jesus says here. Why do men choose darkness over the light? One, he says, because their works are evil. That's how you know we don't have righteousness apart from him. Because our very deeds are evil. But then, listen to this other thing that he says. He says, even more than that, Men don't come into the light because the light exposes who we really are. That's why we stay away from the light. <laughs> we are like the roaches when you turn on the light and they scatter. When the light comes on and it reveals who we really are, we scatter because it exposes us. Ding, dong. Here we have the crowning verse. We reject the light because there is a certain amount of self-worth that we have that we think adds value to our lives, that adds merit to our lives. And when the light shines on our lives, we realize that we are miserable sinners whose hearts are black and whose works are stained by our own sins. So what do we do? We reject God. We reject the light. We reject the biblical view of him because in the light, get this, our self-worth is no longer tied to our own works, but it's tied to his works. It's tied to what he has done. Finally, We have an obligation to get everybody this gospel while we have them here. Listen, a week ago, I didn't even have a clue that when I stepped out of this pulpit, when I got home and I'm looking at my phone and it's telling me that Kobe Bryant has been killed along with eight other people in a helicopter accident. And I remember looking at Chris and I was like, um, Kobe Bryant died. She said, oh, that's that's fake news. That's not real. That's not true. And more and more I watched as the world seemingly stood still in a way I've never seen the world respond to a death before. There was just this callousness about it can't be true. This cannot be true. realized that it wasn't just him, but it was his 13-year-old daughter and two other teenagers and other adults who were killed. In fact, I listened to the video. There's a lady whose doorbell ring recorded it, and in one second you hear the helicopter flying over her house. You hear a crash, and then there's silence. And I'm listening to that and I think that is the moment. They were flung from this life into the next and it was in the moment. One single arbitrary moment and the world could not accept it because people like that just don't die. Not at that age, not in that way. And I've seen people all over Facebook and social media say, oh, somebody had to be responsible. This had to happen. I've seen them look into that pilot. He was well credentialed. I've seen them look into that helicopter. It was well secured. Maybe we have to accept the fact that God allows the people to live that he wants to live and he alone is in control of death. That is what we don't want to accept. But that is our reality. What they did not know before they got on their helicopter is that they, those were their final moments together. There have been times where I have preached at funerals and I have told people, I may never see you again. And I never did. We cannot waste time on petty differences, on not wanting to get on people's nerves. We have to give people this gospel while we have them here. Nobody has ever been saved from a casket. When they are dead and gone, they are gone. Their eternity is secure. Stop wasting time with people. Give people the gospel while you have them here. Because the last thing you want to do is turn around. After you walk away from that casket and think about every conversation you should have had. Every opportunity you should have used to give that person the gospel. And then watch a preacher struggle to preach them into heaven. listen none of us wants that kind of guilt none of us wants that kind of pain while we have people where we have them you tell them this scripture you tell them John 3 16 you memorize it it gets into your heart it pierces your spirit and you give it to every single person Because we all need the gospel. Love people while you have them here. And share the love of Christ while you have them. And let them know how deep the love of God runs.